Support for Living on Earth comes from listeners like you. Please make a donation online at LOE.org or call me at 617-629-3638. And thanks. From Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Jeff Young. The race is on to limit damage from the Gulf's oil gusher. But one of the weapons against the oil, chemical dispersants, could be a double-edged sword. I don't think that our knowledge of dispersants is adequate. There's just a lot of unknowns that still remain out there. And frankly, the funding for this work has been very, very limited, which is one of the reasons why a lot of those questions are still unresolved. And we'll hear from one of the nation's most distinguished scientists going back to Alabama, in spirit at least. After 59 years at Harvard, all my adult life, I wanted to go home. So along with the novel, I've written a history of that part of the South. E.O. Wilson and his novel about ants. Those stories and more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. Support for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation and Stonyfield Farm. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Somerville, Massachusetts, this is Living on Earth. I'm Jeff Young. Federal officials say it's an all-hands-on-deck, 24-7 effort against the oil gusher in the Gulf of Mexico. But one of the main tools to minimize the oil's impact raises its own set of problems. Some 400,000 gallons of chemical dispersants have been sprayed on the surface and injected deep in the sea to speed breakdown of the oil. In a press teleconference, EPA Administrator Lisa Jackson said those dispersants have their own drawbacks, and scientists aren't sure how they might affect marine life. Dispersants are not a silver bullet. They are used to move us towards the lesser of two difficult environmental outcomes. A 2005 report from the National Academy of Sciences concluded... In many instances, the understanding of key processes is inadequate to confidently support a decision to apply dispersants. We contacted Dr. Nancy Kinner for more on this. She directs the University of New Hampshire's Coastal Response Research Center. It's a clearinghouse for information on oil spill response. I don't think that our knowledge of dispersants is adequate. There's just a lot of unknowns that still remain out there. And Frankly, the funding for this work has been very, very limited, which is one of the reasons why a lot of those questions are still unresolved. Why have we had limited uh, research into this? Because I I know this issue of whether or not to use dispersants came up uh, uh, back uh, during the uh, the Valdez spill in 1989. You'd, You'd think we would have studied this by now. There was a lot of funding that was authorized in the Oil Pollution Act of 1990 to do research. But as oftentimes happens uh, when you have kind of a catastrophe like the Exxon Valdez, the actual appropriation of the funds never occurs. So so Congress, uh, in theory, wanted these studies to be funded, but, but never really came through with the dough. Well, not only Congress, industry uh, has also cut back on its uh, R&D programs. So it really has been a problem across the board. And the comment always has been made uh, that we, we don't have big spills anymore. Now, BP has been using large amounts of these chemical dispersants to try to break up the oil. How do those dispersants work and what are some of the drawbacks with using them? 
the whole concept of the dispersant is that it basically is a kind of a substance that we call a surfactant. Part of it is soluble in the oil, and another part of the molecule is soluble in the water. So what they do is they use these large airplanes uh, with the dispersant on them. They have nozzles that spray it out over uh, the water, and then the wave action actually acts as the turbulence to pull that oil droplet out of the rest of the slick and put it into the water. The other key factor about this is that the degree of turbulence actually determines the size of the droplets And then what does that do in terms of the oil's effect on the ecosystem there, where the oil is broken up out at sea? If you have those very small droplets, for some of the uh, organisms at the very base of the food chain, they may ingest those particles. And that may not be good because you can then get them being ingested by other organisms, etc., On the flip side of that, the smaller, very tiny droplets have a lot of surface area to them. And by having a lot of surface area, that means that you may be able to get faster colonization by bacteria, and those bacteria can then use the oil as a food source and break it down. So there are kind of trade-offs there. Now, the dispersants themselves are also toxic to some degree. How big a concern is that? There has been some work done on the toxicity of the dispersants, and the idea has always been that the toxicity is not a big factor because most of the dispersant becomes associated with the oil, and you don't have very much free dispersant in the water. Unfortunately, we don't have a lot of data on this to really show what proportion, especially in a spill like this where we're putting on so much, actually does become associated with the oil. and what uh, effect the toxicity could have. I'm guessing that in most other spills where they use dispersants, it was just that, a spill. A certain known volume came out of a broken tanker, for example. How is that situation different from what we're dealing with now in terms of the decision on whether or not to use dispersants? Well, when you use dispersants in a spill... That's a very different situation than what we potentially have here because there's a continuous use of dispersant. There's a continuous release of oil for potentially a fairly long period of time. And so there's a potentially a continuous exposure of organisms, and that can have a lot more implications for uh, impacts on an ecosystem. Then what's your recommendation when uh, folks responding to this spill come to your center and say, what should we do? What do you tell them? Well, I don't think that our knowledge of dispersants is adequate. However, having said that, right now, the Coast Guard and the federal agencies and the industry folks are dealing with a spill that is very, very large and has no sign of abating. And the decision has been made that the best course of action is to keep that oil as much as possible off of the marshes, out of those sensitive areas. And the only way that they have of doing that, especially when the weather doesn't cooperate and you have wind and waves, is to add dispersant. There are going to be accidents. I mean, it's just uh, if you do drilling, the probability is that you are going to have an accident. The question is, can you live with the consequences of that accident? Dr. Nancy Kenner directs the Coastal Response Research Center at the University of New Hampshire. Thank you very much. 
You're very welcome. Thank you for talking with me. Well, the spill has already shut down some fishing areas, and all along the Gulf Coast, people who make their living from the sea are anxiously waiting. In Alabama, conservation scientist Jeff DiQuattro is watching oyster reefs. I'm extremely worried about this because, because oysters are under the surface of the water most of their life. Tarballs, if they get into an oyster reef, they will suffocate those oysters. Seafood is a multi-billion dollar business in the Gulf, but it's just one of the valuable services the coast's marshes and estuaries provide. Professor David Yaskowitz is working at the Hart Research Institute for Gulf of Mexico Studies in Corpus Christi, Texas, to put a dollar figure on what are called ecosystem services. He looked at some 500,000 acres of marsh that might be affected by the spill. We estimate that the impact on ecosystem services would be in the range of $1.2 billion per year. And in terms of this oil spill, if the uh, biological impact on those marshes is significant, this could be something that doesn't take place in just one year, but in several years. Now, when you say services, what, what are we talking about here? Well, ecosystem services are those direct and indirect contributions that the environment makes to us as humans and impacts our human well-being. And we focus just solely on wetlands and the services of waste treatment and storm protection. So this is not looking at fishing, which is the the immediate economic benefit we think of when we think of these areas. This is just looking at these kind of uh, hidden things that the wetlands do for us and we take for granted. That's exactly right. I mean, we have a pretty good handle on the impact on commercial and recreational fishing. I mean, that th- those are really well represented in the markets. What we're looking at is those goods and services that aren't represented in the markets that are that are hard to calculate, but in a lot of cases, much more valuable than the marketed goods. How does this ecosystem service work? How do, how do the marshes do that for us? Well, marshes are really, uh, really efficient in, in taking out nitrogen and phosphorus as well as other nutrients and essentially cleaning them or embedding them. In fact, a lot of wastewater treatment plants around the country and the world use constructed wetlands as a final processing point for their waste. And what about as a storm barrier? How, how do they do that? Well, if you can think about the miles and miles of wetlands that are in front of the city of New Orleans, if you get a a significant storm surge for every mile of wetlands, it's estimated that the storm surge would be reduced by about a foot. So if you take that away, then you would have to engineer something that would be comparable, and that would be significantly expensive. And uh, Katrina uh, taught us a a painful lesson on that. That's exactly right. And, And in fact... You know, where the dikes held, and this colleagues of mine had told me this on the ecology side, where the dikes held is where we had marsh built up in front of it, and where they didn't hold was where we didn't have marsh built up in front of it. How do you see uh, figures like this uh, being put to use? What would a policymaker uh, use this for? Well, that's that's a good question. I, th- I think, you know, if you're looking at it at a local and a, and a regional level, Let's say you have some a developer that wants to come in and put in a marina, which could potentially displace marsh and seagrass, as well as, as dig channels into barrier islands. If, if we're going to do a cost-benefit analysis, you know, the decisions are incomplete if they don't include all costs 
and all benefits provided by that environment. And so to make more complete decisions, we have to begin to incorporate these services that the environment is providing us. The uh, spill coming just a few months before we will mark the uh, fifth anniversary of Katrina, it uh, really gives you a reason to stop and think about how all this comes together, doesn't it? It sure does. You know, it's 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 one-two punch that's unfortunately happened to the Gulf Coast, and the first punch was, was with Katrina, and the second punch with the oil spill. It's imperative that we begin to take some action and, and start to really talk about what we receive in terms of the benefits from our natural environment. David Yoskowitz at the Hart Research Institute for Gulf of Mexico Studies. Thank you very much. Thank you. Well, the Gulf spill is also inspiring innovative use of social media on the Internet to focus citizen response. The Louisiana Bucket Brigade has a map that shows instant reports of oil. Bucket Brigade Director Ann Rolfa says it's a form of crowdsourcing. Imagine, you know, if you're in a crowd and somebody starts giving away free beer, how the whole crowd rushes to the beer. That's what we're trying to replicate, except what we're trying to identify is places where there are problems from the oil spill. The map shows beaches with tar balls and places where the smell of oil is strong. The Cornell Ornithology Lab's eBird program maps citizen sightings of Gulf Coast birds to help wildlife response teams on the ground. There's more about this at our website, LOE.org. And speaking of social media, we have a new Facebook page. Look up PRI's Living on Earth on Facebook. Just ahead, the Senate launches a climate change bill in an uncertain political climate. Keep listening to Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Jeff Young. While the Gulf Coast is bracing for the oil's impact, the spill is already having an effect in Washington, D.C. U.S. Interior Secretary Ken Salazar announced major changes to the agency that regulates offshore drilling, the Minerals Management Service. As Living on Earth and others have reported, MMS, as it's known, has long been criticized for ethics problems and lax oversight. It didn't even require a full environmental analysis of the drilling plan BP submitted for the rig that exploded April 20th. And Jeff Rook, who directs the nonprofit Public Employees for Environmental Responsibility, told us that Minerals Management's dual mission put the agency in a bind. There is a conflict. Their primary role is to collect the government cut, the royalties. And they're also supposed to make sure that the operations are done according to law. And the principal laws involve protecting the environment uh, from many effects, principally oil spills. In other words, minerals management was both policing and promoting offshore drilling. Well, not anymore. Secretary Salazar is splitting the minerals management service in two. I believe the job of ensuring energy companies follow the law and protect the safety of their workers and the environment should be independent from MMS's leasing, revenue collection, and permitting functions. Secretary Salazar also wants to give minerals management more authority, resources, and time to review drilling plans that companies submit. The announcement drew applause from many watchdog groups. But in Alaska, there are still questions about plans for new drilling already in the works. Alaska Wilderness League's Kristen Miller says minerals management was operating under its old rules when it considered plans for drilling in the Beaufort and Chukchi Seas. For the Arctic, that means that there is a drill rig that, as we speak, is heading up and it's prepared to start exploratory drilling in less than 50 days. 
We strongly believe the administration has to suspend that activity because many of the questions that we are raised in the Gulf are the same questions that are surrounding the development that is expected in the Arctic. Secretary Salazar says he will complete a review of the drilling plans for Alaskan waters and make a recommendation within a month. On Capitol Hill, six senators from Pacific Coast states introduced legislation to permanently ban drilling off the West Coast. The drilling dispute has roiled the political waters just as a long-awaited bill on climate change was finally launched in the U.S. Senate. Living on Earth's Mitra Taj reports from Washington. It's taken eight months, but it's finally ready. Senate legislation to cap greenhouse gas emissions. And the bill's co-sponsor, Democrat John Kerry, says it aims to do much more. Thank you. Thank you. This is a vote for clean energy. This is a vote for billions of dollars for the next generation of jobs in clean coal and safe nuclear power. This is a vote to end America's addiction to foreign oil and to safeguard the air that our children breathe and the water that they drink. The American Power Act's biggest ambition is a hard target. Cut climate change pollution by 17 percent in 10 years and by 83 percent in 40 years. To get us there, the proposal puts a price on carbon dioxide and helps consumers pay for higher energy bills. It's the polluters, not the people, who should pay. But the unveiling of the Senate climate change bill wasn't supposed to happen like this. Kerry and Independent Senator Joe Lieberman were supposed to release it weeks ago with a Republican co-sponsor, and standing beside them, representatives of the oil industry. Instead, Kerry faced this question from a reporter at the press conference. Why are no oil companies here today? Because one CEO of the oil company is very busy uh, dealing with what's going on in the Gulf, and the others had board meetings. We have a number of executives who are not here today. The disaster in the Gulf of Mexico might have nixed the planned photo op with oil executives, but the industry's mark is still visible in a few of the thousand-plus pages of draft legislation. It offers states that sign up for oil and gas drilling off their shores 40% of industry royalties. That could mean billion-dollar incentives for some very revenue-hungry states, which worries Eric Pica, president of Friends of the Earth. It doesn't take long for oil money to seep into the states and the states to realize that they can make more money off this before you kind of see the greasy slope of oil money encouraging these states to open up the offshore. I think the Gulf of Mexico spill proves that the oil industry doesn't know what it's doing and runs the risk of sacrificing communities, fisheries around the United States if they mess up. And they will mess up, and they do mess up. After the BP oil rig accident, some environmental groups and legislators hoped the offshore provision would be tossed from the bill. But it's remained, albeit with a caveat. Any directly impacted state can veto an offshore drilling project within 75 miles of its shores. That doesn't impress Pica. 75 miles? The oil slick in the Gulf of Mexico is over 200 miles right now. An oil spill travels, and so we're disappointed by the Kerry Learman bill. But that's not all groups like Friends of the Earth and Greenpeace don't like about the proposal. The bill also strips the EPA's ability to regulate greenhouse gases and overrides state plans to cut their own emissions. But more than 20 environmental groups, including the Sierra Club and the Natural Resources Defense Council, have decided to endorse the bill, though their support runs a little lukewarm. Dan Lashoff is director of the Climate Center at NRDC. We think that incentives for states to expand offshore drilling have no place in this bill. But what makes this bill important is its fundamental limits on carbon pollution. You know, obviously, deeper reductions faster would be better, but um, it's a good start on what we need to do. It's not just green groups that are divided over the bill. 
It's also industry. Kerry and Lieberman have struggled to get all relevant energy interests on board, with loan guarantees for new nuclear plants, research money for a cleaner way to burn coal, and expansion of offshore oil and gas drilling. Representatives of utilities and nuclear industries have been vocal about their support of the climate bill, but the response from oil is mixed. BP and Shell have endorsed it. Others remain silent. The oil refining industry is pretty clear in its position. We are strongly opposed to it. Greg Scott is vice president of the National Petrochemical and Refiners Association. Clearly, we are emitters. And from our point of view, if we are going to reduce carbon uh, emissions by 80 percent by 2050, it is going to harm our industry and it's going to harm consumers. Under the bill, the oil industry would have to buy a limited number of allowances in order to pollute. And that, Scott says, is bad for business. But the bill's support for more offshore drilling does make it more appealing. Certainly, having increased access to domestic resources is a great positive step. It heats up competition, and competition brings down prices, and that's good for all of us. But it is a positive step, but it's not enough. All eyes are now on the Senate's swing votes, especially the handful of Republicans that Senators Kerry and Lieberman have been courting. Maine Senators Olympia Snow and Susan Collins, and South Carolina Senator Lindsey Graham, the climate bill's former Republican co-sponsor. David Jenkins, the political director for Republicans for Environmental Protection, says it's time Republicans come on board. We released a poll that showed that 52 percent of Republicans support a bill that increases domestic energy production and at the same time puts controls and limits on carbon dioxide pollution. And actually more Tea Party supporters are in favor of this kind of comprehensive approach to energy legislation than are opposed to it right now. You know, this is an opportunity, and you've got to seize it. The draft of the American Power Act will probably pick up additional pages when the Senate takes it up for debate and more compromises are struck. But whether it will also pick up enough votes remains to be seen. For Living on Earth, I'm Mitra Taj in Washington. Just ahead, trying to clean up the polluted air at the Port of Los Angeles. But first, this cool fix for a hot planet from Bridget McDonald. Wastewater treatment plants are designed to make sewage clean, but they could have an added benefit. Growing algae for fuel. Using algae to make fuel is not a new idea. These photosynthetic organisms are efficient factories that convert sunlight to energy. Algae have fatty cells that are loaded with oil so they can produce more energy than other biofuel crops on an acre-per-acre basis. But the tiny green plants have a relatively large carbon footprint when they're cultivated on an industrial scale. Commercial algae ponds are pumped with CO2 bubbles and nitrogen fertilizer, ingredients that stimulate algal growth but also contribute to greenhouse gas emissions. Researchers at the University of Virginia say algae producers can make the process greener by using wastewater to grow their crops. Billions of gallons of sewage are processed in the U.S. every year, and many facilities use open lagoons in the treatment process. If algae producers set up shop next to these wastewater ponds, they could tap into readily available organic nutrients. It's a win-win situation. Nitrogen and phosphorus must be removed from wastewater before it can be released into the environment, a process that's costly. 
the algae provide a public service by absorbing these unwanted elements from the water. Pond scum has never sounded so sweet. That's this week's cool fix for a hot planet. I'm Bridget McDonald. And if you have a cool fix for a hot planet, we'd like to know it. If we use your idea on the air, we'll send you a sleek electric blue living on Earth tire gauge. Keeping your tires properly inflated can save hundreds of dollars in fuel. Call our listener line at 800-218-9988 or email us at coolfix, that's one word, coolfix at loe.org or post your idea on our new Facebook page, PRI's Living on Earth. The Port of Los Angeles is the largest seaport in the Western Hemisphere, receiving nearly a quarter of all the nation's imports. Heavy-duty diesel trucks pass through its gates some 15,000 times a day. That helps make it the most polluted part of a notoriously polluted region. Well, now the trucking industry and the city of Los Angeles are awaiting a decision in a case that's just the latest to test how far authorities in California can go to clean up dirty air. Living on Earth's Ingrid Lobet reports. The Los Angeles Basin has the worst small particle or soot pollution in the country. Most of that soot comes from diesel, diesel burning ships, diesel road equipment, diesel trucks. At seaports, ships, trains and trucks all converge in a choking haze. So two years ago, the Port of Los Angeles banned old, dirty trucks from coming in to pick up containers. But the port didn't stop there. It required that trucking companies purchase their own trucks and hire on truckers as employees instead of contracting with independent owner-operators. Port leaders believe that companies more than hard-pressed owner-operators could afford to maintain trucks in clean running condition. There couldn't be a clearer example of the local government imposing regulations that upset and disrupt the marketplace. That's attorney Bob Diggs, who represents the American Trucking Associations. The group sued the port, saying this rule turned their business model upside down because most trucks serving the port were owned by independent operators. Diggs spoke on the federal courthouse steps. If Los Angeles is allowed to basically re-regulate the trucking industry, then every other jurisdiction in the country can wholly disrupt the flow of interstate commerce. The Trucking Association also says Los Angeles is disingenuous when it claims this is all about clean air. It says under the law, trucking companies have to maintain trucks they contract with just the same as if the trucks belong to them. Diggs says the city has an ulterior motive, to help organize labor. For years... The Teamsters have been trying to organize these independent contractors. They can't do it, so the only way to get that done is to turn them into employees. That's the real issue here. But leaders at the Port of Los Angeles say it is all about air pollution. Government research shows residents in the port area have a 60% higher risk of developing cancer than people in the rest of the city, and their risk is increasing while risk decreases elsewhere in the city. Environmental groups citing this data kept suing the port, and they kept winning. They brought port expansion to a dead halt, admitted Port Executive Director Geraldine Natz. We got to a situation where we were sort of dead in the water on on doing anything at the ports here because we had so many environmental issues to deal with. Forced to act, the port banned all trucks built before 1994 and instituted the employer rule. It also insists it has the right to revoke the port license of any trucker who repeatedly arrives at the gate with an old truck spewing black smoke. 
Attorney David Pettit is with the Natural Resources Defense Council, once the port's nemesis, now its partner in this suit. Pettit says the port needs the power to revoke a license, even if no other port in the country has it. You have a a trucking company that sends a hundred dirty trucks in a row to the ports. L.A. can start a proceeding saying, we're going to pull your ticket to come to the port. You have to prove to us what you're going to do to clean up, and that's going to enforce cleaner trucks a lot faster than relying on the feds. Federal law already allows Los Angeles to inspect trucks, but Pettit says existing federal law doesn't begin to help Los Angeles bring its air up to healthy standards. The trucks at the port have been filthy. If the federal system worked, we wouldn't have been in this situation. Now it's the job of a federal judge to decide whether L.A.'s clean truck program is constitutional. For Living on Earth, I'm Ingrid Lobet in Los Angeles. been occasionally featuring some poetry inspired by or reflecting nature on our program over the last few weeks. Today we have two poets. We'll hear Ross Gay reading his poem Redbud. But first, here's Natasha Trethaway with Lyman. It began for me one day hearing a woodpecker outside of my house and how that sound carried me to another place, uh, a place in memory in which I recalled uh, my mother doing some domestic work out in the yard. And what's interesting to me about this poem was the discovery of a word I hadn't known. And alignment is the actual threshold of a door, but it's also the threshold to an emotional or psychological state. This is Lyman. All day I've listened to the industry of a single woodpecker worrying the catalpa tree just outside my window. Hard at his task, his body is a hinge, a door knocker to the cluttered house of memory in which I can almost see my mother's face. She is there again, beyond the tree, its slender pods and heart-shaped leaves, hanging wet sheets on the line, each one a thin white screen between us. So insistent is this woodpecker, I'm sure he must be looking for something else, not simply the beetles and grubs inside, but some other gift the tree might hold. All day he's been at work tireless, making the green hearts flutter. I grew up in the Northeast, and for some reason I never saw redbuds, and I, I'm not sure how much they are around there, but where I am now in Indiana, there's just a ton of redbuds, and they call them Judas trees out here, and they're so beautiful. Ode to the redbud. You trillion hallelujahs, you jump up, silly and scream, you luscious, you luminous, you firebrand blazing, you sugar knot and swagger, you bird hive, you TNT, you bloodstreams thousand tongues, you hemoglobin tumble and gut throttle, you, you, you teeth dragged across a scapula, you pelvic, you pushing down and howling up, you florid muscle of the mouth and pink house, you slick dream. 
scream and holler, machine, you lap for washing my face clean. As well as writing poetry, Roske teaches creative writing at Indiana University at Bloomington. Natasha Trethaway is a professor of English at Emory University, where she also holds the Phyllis Wheatley Distinguished Chair in Poetry. Coming up, E.O. Wilson's novel observations on society, both ours and ants. That's just ahead on Living on Earth. Support for the Environmental Health Desk at Living on Earth comes from the Cedar Tree Foundation. Support also comes from the Richard and Rhoda Goldman Fund for coverage of population and the environment. And from Gilman Ordway for coverage of conservation and environmental change. This is Living on Earth on PRI, Public Radio International. It's Living on Earth. I'm Jeff Young. We've just launched a new online initiative called Planet Harmony, where young people who have often been left out of the environmental debate can report on the issues affecting their communities. Today's story comes from Los Angeles. California's Department of Public Health says less than half of African-Americans in the state eat enough fruits and vegetables, often because fresh produce simply isn't available where they live. A farmer's market in L.A.'s predominantly black Crenshaw neighborhood is finding that if you build it, they won't necessarily come. Planet Harmony's King Anye Howell reports. So we out here, the Harabi Farmer's Market, it's crazy empty. I mean, I've been here since maybe 12 o'clock. It's almost 2.30. And uh, nobody here. I maybe saw one person go get some fruits. It's an average Saturday morning at the Harambe Farmer's Market. Baskets of bright red tomatoes and strawberries settled next to fresh picked greens and okra all compete for attention in the area saturated with fast food chains and lesser-known grease depots. The market is at the busy intersection of Crenshaw and Slauson, at a former fire station tucked between a bank and an auto paint shop. Michelle Guillaume lives in South Central. She says the farmer's market is in the perfect location to attract customers. It's where, you know, commercial business meets hustlers and street vendors and... uh... You know, with Crenshaw Boulevard being what it is, just everybody, it's a main vein through our city, so you get some of everybody, and we all mingle on these corners. Guillaume buys fresh strawberries to add to lemonade, green onions and lettuce for her taco truck that operates right outside the market. Nearby, a customer is buying oranges. Why have oranges three for a dollar? But apart from them, there are very few shoppers. The African Firefighters and Benevolence Association, or AFIBA, that organizes the market is really trying to attract more customers and expand the market, which currently only has seven stands. They've hung a large banner advertising the market's hours for the thousands of cars that drive by daily. They telephone local residents, and they also try to lure customers with a live band. But even that doesn't seem to be working. The market remains largely empty. Shoppers pass the market by and head for the neon-emblazed Ralph's Supermarket. 
I walked across the street to ask a Ralph's customer, Ladine, why she didn't come to the market. I think mostly everybody bought produce here because, uh, you know, you want to go to one place to get everything you need. The big supermarket may not have quality produce, but it is convenient and familiar, while the farmer's market remains hidden in plain sight. Okay, I didn't know about the market, and now that I know, I will go. Vegetables at Harambe go straight from the ground to the community. The food here provides nutrition that is missing from the fast food chains and bodegas that line these streets. Today we have grapes. That's um, vendor Ethan Robinson. Corn that was grown in the Williamson's farm up in Merced. The lack of customers puts farmers like Larry Williamson, who labor to make fresh produce available to the black community, in a tough spot. I could probably run this for another struggle along for another five years. Williamson is a native of Los Angeles, but farms about a four-hour drive away in Merced, California. He told me that he is in a unique position to help provide healthy options to the African-American community. I don't think that I'm going to never garner the Italian market, the Hispanic market, or the Asian market. Okay. So I, I make it very clearly, I'm in a better position to help the black market because... We've always had the arguments from the 80s to the 90s. The food that comes to our stores always, it's old, it's tainted, and all these things. His farm grows $150,000 to $200,000 worth of produce annually, but he has to give away most of his unsold crops or feed them to the chickens and goats that graze on the farm, so he barely turns a profit. However, Williamson keeps coming back to the farmer's market. He's committed to providing competitively priced healthy alternatives to the cheap junk food that's so common here. For Larry, it's about more than just green. He has a vision. I have enough land and enough seeds that I can make probably an extra twenty, thirty thousand dollars to put in my pocket and be totally satisfied. But that's not my goal. That's not my objective. My goal is to, in the next five years, I want to own a hundred acres and lease a thousand acres. With that amount of land, I can feed every black family in California. And maybe Williamson's enthusiasm is starting to catch on. Traffic at Harambe is slowly picking up. The people who organized the market have added more regular activities like live music and self-defense workshops. They also accept WIC vouchers. With the help of farmers like Larry Williamson and the Afiba Center that supports the market, Harambe may slowly start to shift inner-city eating trends. Drop by if you're ever in L.A. on a Saturday afternoon. Let me get some of these grapes. For Planet Harmony and Living on Earth, I'm King Anya Howell. King Anya Howell reports for our brand new online offering, Planet Harmony, which welcomes all and is designed to have special appeal for young African Americans. Check it out and join the discussion at myplanetharmony.com. That's myplanetharmony.com. O. Wilson is probably one of the best-known living scientists. The Harvard professor's study of ants and conservation work has made him practically a household name. Now at the age of 81, Edward Osborne Wilson is trying something new. Fiction. His latest book, Ant Hill, is his first novel. It has ants in it, as the title implies, but it's inspired by his boyhood spent roaming the woods around Mobile, Alabama. After 59 years... At Harvard, all my adult life, 
I wanted to go home, and I couldn't do it easily physically, but I could do it spiritually. So along with the novel, I've written a history of that part of the South. So uh, this novel that I wrote, Anthill, comes together as a recreation in part of my early childhood, but also of the culture as I perceive it now. I see the crisis stage that the South is in now is in the land and how we in the South will use the land, whether we will introduce the idea of sustainability, whether we'll save our natural resources, and how much of our original environment we will save. Well, uh, that is the the central conflict in the novel, is uh, your your main character, uh, Raph, Raphael Sims Cody, who decides to try to save his uh, beloved uh, local uh, tract of woods. Tell me about your, your character here, uh, Raph. Well, he's actually a lot like me. Really? I hadn't noticed that. Let, <laughs> had, let, let's well, see. He, uh, he he grows up in Alabama. Right. He likes ants and nature, and he goes to Harvard. That does sound vaguely familiar now that you mention it. Well, you know, a, a novelist, uh, particularly a first novelist, uh, should uh, go along the best-worn paths of his personal experience. Write what you know, they say. And Raph has a history that resembles mine just about up to the time he goes to college. But then after that... Uh, his life veers off radically. He goes into the study of law. But he, he never loses sight of his main goal, and that is to save that tract of woods that that was so important to him. And what I find interesting is he he chooses to return to and work within the social institutions that are that are kind of part of the problem, that are, you know, the developers who, who might uh, destroy this tract of woods. Yes, Raphael is... I admit, like me, uh, he is what could be called an agitated moderate or uh, a radical centrist. Comes to realize that the best way to solve uh, seemingly intractable problems is by uh, win-win solutions. Here's what occurred to me, though, is you're, you're clearly arguing the, the, the moderate incremental approach to trying to conserve nature. However, if... Uh, Areas like uh, your home in the, in the South are in crisis mode, as you put it, with uh, the way we're treating our lands. Do we have time for a moderate incremental approach, or does it call for a a faster and more radical approach to conservation? Actually, it calls for a, a strategic, smart mix. I am well aware, being now and in, deeply involved in conservation in the South Alabama and Florida Panhandle area myself. The best thing to do is to buy the land. But this is not a wealthy part of the country. Alabama, as a state, does not have the wherewithal to um, buy (coughs) new parks. When we uh, find a priority area, the best thing to do is to get them all put aside, all of it put aside as a reserve. But if you can't achieve that, then you take the next option, which is to uh, actually work with developers. Along the lines of, uh, of, of writing about what you know, you, you write uh, at length in here about ants. There's a sizable section called the Ant Hill Chronicles, where ant colonies essentially become your characters for, for a good quarter of the, of the book there. Mm-hmm. That's true. In fact, they are characters in the novel. And 
Uh, the whole point of the novel is that we will be re-examining three worlds that exist simultaneously. And one of them uh, is the, uh, the ants, uh, which build civilizations in the dirt. The others are the humans. And the third is the ecosystem. I chose the most abundant insects on Earth and ones with the most highly evolved social systems, the ants. They make up more than half of the biomass of insects on the Earth, ants. Uh, they are the most socially evolved. Uh, they have the most complex system of any creatures outside of humans. And being organized into colonies, many species anyway, are constantly at war. They have many of the problems that humans have in competition among groups, in the way they develop loyalty to their groups, and the way they keep their groups uh, tightly organized. One of these uh, colonies undergoes some genetic uh, mutation, which allows it to uh, greatly expand what would normally be its, its restrictions. Does that actually happen with, with ant colonies? Yes, super colonies happen. A very simple change in the genetics, one gene change can bring them about. In the fire ant, the case we know the best, there was one mutation. And what that mutation did is silenced the tendency of the colonies to distinguish one another. So they fused. It also impaired or silenced the ability to tell how many queens it had. And the result of that was as these colonies then fused into a super colonies, and sometimes they can have millions or, well, tens of millions, or in one extreme case we know of in Japan, a hundred million workers, then you have lots of little queens all scattered through the colony as well. And the risk to the environment is that super colony can saturate the environment more effectively than can a, a congeries of, uh, of colonies that are spaced well apart from one another. And in this case, they, they completely overwhelm their, their natural surroundings and yeah, exhaust they, they, their they resources. Yeah, they overwhelm the other colonies. The other colonies, were not, they didn't have that gene, so they were following the rules so to speak, the super colony um, overwhelmed them, uh, just had all the advantages. But in doing so, it then started overusing the environment, and uh, difficulties lay ahead. Now, in in the book Ant Hill, the the Ant Hill is the analogy for for human society to some degree. So, is it your view that that's what's going on in humanity? That uh, some genetic mutation is responsible for us? Uh, yeah, uh, I like to put it in terms of um, what we call parallel evolution or convergent evolution. And it's true that uh, many of the problems that um, arise in the human condition come from having strict group identity. It appears to be a deep instinct of people to mm-hmm. belong to a group. And uh, the tendency then for us to not only belong to a group and get the security of belonging to a group, but for groups to be in contest with one another, one form or another, and for us to have powerful emotional response to our group. Not, not just us, but us versus them is the... Us versus them is binary. Ants have a parallel. You know, um, the novelist uh, Margaret Atwood, she reviewed your books in the, in the New York uh, Review, and um, she points out that um, 
you know, taking on a novel is is not without its risks. And uh, here's what Miss Atwood, who's written a few books her, herself in, in the realm of fiction, has to say. Those of us who, has, who have been at this for a while might have warned him off. Stick to what you know, we might have said. Rest on your considerable laurels. Don't risk having the literati point and jeer. What have you got to gain? Were those questions nagging at you? Uh, do you have any second thoughts about having gone down the, uh, the route of fiction? Um, didn't nag on me at all. I already have tenure at Harvard. <laughs> More than <laughs> How that. much damage can they do? <laughs> <laughs> More than that, I'd already retired. Besides, uh, I thought I could pull it off pretty well. I got very excellent reviews from uh, the New York uh, Times, book reviews and so on, from novelists, and I feel vindicated. Some may have given me a bit of slack because I was a scientist coming over with the right attitude. But I I wasn't afraid of doing that and uh, felt that I had something very substantial to offer, and that is the deeper scientific insights we have of nature. Most novelists don't go that far. They they have dark woods through which people pass to get to the lighted house or... Mm -hmm a marsh in which uh, they are in danger of their boat sinking, and they've described nature of that or a a little bit better detail, but never the way I've tried it in such depth. Do you think you'll write more fiction? Nope, I don't think so. I've got uh, several books in the pipeline now that are absorbing my attention, and they're nonfiction, and uh, one of them is on the uh, evolution of social behavior, new insights into it. And these are very absorbing to me. And after all, I haven't got that much more time to spin out novels one after the other. E.O. Wilson, Ed Wilson, thank you very much for coming by. It's a great pleasure. Thank you. It was a great conversation. We leave you this week with a little night music. It's dusk at Horse Pond in Madison, Connecticut, and the spring peepers are out in force. These tiny nocturnal frogs have large vocal sacs in their throats. They draw air into the sac so it fills up like a balloon, and then push the air out quickly to make their eponymous peeps. Producer Mark Seth Linder crouched at Pond's Edge with a parabolic microphone to record this amphibian chorus. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Bobby Bascom, Eileen Bolinsky, Bruce Gellerman, Ingrid Lobet, Helen Palmer, Jessica Elise Smith, Ike Shreeskanjaraja, and Mitra Taj, with help from Sarah Calkins, Marilyn Gavoni, and Sammy Souza. Our interns are Emily Guerin and Bridget McDonald. Jeff Turton is our technical director. Allison Learish-Dean composed our themes. Our executive producer is Steve Kerwood. You can find us anytime at LOE.org. I'm Jeff Young. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation, supporting coverage of emerging science. And Stonyfield Farm, organic yogurt and smoothies. Stonyfield pays its farmers not to use artificial growth hormones on their cows. Details at stonyfield.com. Support also comes from you, our listeners. The Ford Foundation, the Town Creek Foundation, the Oak Foundation, supporting coverage of climate change and marine issues. The Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, dedicated to the idea that all people deserve a chance to live a healthy, productive life. Information at gatesfoundation.org. And Pax World Mutual Funds, 
integrating environmental, social, and governance factors into investment analysis and decision-making. On the web at PaxWorld.com. PaxWorld, for tomorrow. PRI, Public Radio International.